everyone, and welcome to episode 28 of We Effed Up. I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And we're here once again on our regularly scheduled bi-weekly mission to tell you about all of the times in history when we, the royal we, and in this case definitely the royal we, effed up. What are we talking about this week, Cody? Our bi-weekly mission that we haven't done in months. Yeah, but we're back. We're getting back. Mm-hmm. We're getting back to the sched- the regularly scheduled bi-weekly yes. mission. Yeah, sorry listeners, uh, a bit of a bit of a hiatus for a little while to deal with uh, personal issues. Yeah, we can. So, yeah, everybody can take a hiatus yeah. if they want to. And what an episode to come back for! Uh, back to the misery and gloom of the, tr- of the troubles. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know, I know, it's not the troubles. What are we talking about, actually? We're talking about uh, you're you're close. You're about a hundred, about about a century off. Or a little more in a century. The Irish, the the Great Famine. Oh, no. Is it called the Great Famine? Yes. Oh. I think uh, there's a few different names for it. Uh, the Irish word for it that I can't pronounce. Um, it basically loosely translates to the hard time. Hmm. Uh, the Great Famine. There's several names for it. What's so great about it? Well, not great isn't good. Great is in large. Wow, that joke, I could hear the joke whistling past the top of your head. Just completely went over the top of your head. There was a joke in there? Mm-hmm. Well, you're such an expert at it, uh, I mean, I... I, I know, it's I, I, I bow before the infinite, uh, 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 stupendousness of your jokes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, Ireland, so, if you remember back to our episode on Charles Cornwallis... I do. Ireland became fully integrated into the United Kingdom in 1801. Uh, a little plug for that episode. Go back and listen to it. A mm-hmm. uh, movement to repeal that act of union was led by Daniel O'Connell, who was one of the first Irish people to sit in the... Um, Irish Catholics, rather, to sit in the British Parliament. Uh, because Catholic emancipation, which we kind of touched on in that episode, uh, finally came in 1829. Okay. So Catholics could participate in the political process, and that included Irish Catholics, uh, at least some of them. Uh, the so-called repealers, they formed a significant block in the British Parliament. So it's not, uh, up till now, it kind of just been a loose, not party system, but loose uh, ideological um, factions, uh, the Whigs, conservatives, usually just been between those two. Uh, but I kind of introduce a smaller third uh, faction into it because, like a, a an organized party structure like what we have today, I mean, it wasn't really around yet. It was developing, but I'll get to that. Okay. Uh, but in the years since the union between uh, Britain and Ireland, a series of bills have been passed into law to restrict the importation of foodstuffs into Britain, collectively called the Corn Laws. Is that something? Is it similar to what existed like not even that long ago? Or I guess still exists between, like, Northern Ireland? No. Okay. That's the only thing I had to compare it to. No. Also, the Irish term for it is ungortamor. It's, that's how you pronounce it. Basically, phonetically. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'm not going to try it, because I'll probably mess it up and butcher it. Ungortamor? So. Ungortamor. Yeah. It's three words. Okay. The motivation behind the Corn Laws was to protect British farmers from cheap imports. This is still the time of mercantilism, mm-hmm. where you know the object of creating these large, massive empires was 
is to essentially be self-sufficient mm-hmm. and to gain a larger port or part of uh, what was considered to be kind of like a finite amount of resources in the world mm-hmm. or finite economic system. Yeah. Like there's so, only so much gold. Yeah. So like, you know, you have to control a larger share of it. Right. So these restrictions largely benefited the landholding class as these limited supply of food naturally led to higher prices. Of course. Uh, in this period, political parties, like I said, they weren't uh, they didn't really yet fully coalesced. So political ideologies and alliances, they shifted frequently. Um, the Corn Laws were contentious as different factions from across the political spectrum ranged from enacting stricter import rules to complete repeal. Okay. Um, so just keep that in mind. It was divisive. Yeah. Okay. Uh, ever since the conquest of Ireland by Oliver Cromwell in the 1650s, native Irish land ownership was minimal. Mm-hmm. See our episode on Oliver Cromwell. <laughs> you're, you're, you're seeing why those episodes were necessary to get mm-hmm. to this one. Stepping stones, yes. I get it. Yeah. Most of the land was owned by English or Anglo-Irish Protestants, many of whom didn't even reside in Ireland. Wow. So, absentee landlords. Um... And the landowners, they divided their holdings up into small farms and lent the land to poor tenant farmers who were practically all native Irish. Wow. Okay. So they're doing all of the work, getting none yeah. of the profits. Well, the tenants would farm the land to feed their families, and then they would pay rent to the landowners. So right. it's not like the landowners are using them as farmers and then selling the, the, the product. Yeah. They're basically divvying up their land, saying, you can live in this square it's just big enough for you and your family to have a small farm on to feed yourselves. You pay me rent from whatever, if you have a job or somebody else's family is working. Like, there's extensive mines mm-hmm. in Ireland, a lot of a lot of coal mines in certain areas, um, or doing whatever to get your income, and then you pay me the rent. Seems like a, a good way to keep uh, people in the cycle of poverty. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, very few of the tenants had long-term leases, and so they could be evicted at the whim of the, the, whim of the landlord with little or no warning. Great. Uh, and the farms were only large enough to feed the tenants and their families. So it's basically a garden. We're saying kind farm, of, but like... Yeah. It's basically a garden. Yeah. This, we'll we'll this get into like, like a, the sizes of these plots. Here they're probably bit. not acreages. No, 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 no. Uh, several commissions were set up by the British government in the first half of the 19th century to investigate the poverty endemic in Ireland. Uh, but these never amounted to anything, but mostly because many of the commissioners were landlords themselves. Of course. That's the way that worked. Yeah. Uh, the motivation was pure profit, uh, extracting as much money as possible from the land and the people. Uh, in 1842, an estimated six million pounds, and pounds is in the money, Mm-hmm. Uh, left Ireland, which is the 2021 equivalent of $212 million. Jesus. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Rent would be collected by middlemen for the landlords, and they would use any means necessary to extract every penny from the tenants. So it's kind of like a mafia. Yeah, kind of, because they were, like, commissioned, like... Because taxes weren't really the way they are now, where it's like, okay, file your tax return. A percentage of your income comes out. Yeah. They would... uh, and this is how it was back in the Roman Empire, that long this system's lasted. A person would get a commission, go collect this amount of tax from this area, and you keep whatever is left over. <laughs> wow. So it is like so, a mafia. Yeah. But without the protection. Yep. Cool. Uh, in 1845, 24% of farms were between one and five acres. 
Okay. And 40% were between 5 and 15. Okay. So nearly two-thirds of farms in Ireland were underneath 15 acres. So pretty small. Yeah, which is not a large farm. Yeah. Uh, The small size of the farms forced the farmers to rely on the potato as a major source of sustenance as it required much less space than other other crops. Mm Mm-hmm. And required, like, a lot less work. And it's like, you know, one potato, it's like, okay, that's going to be a meal for a lot of these people. Right. Um, Whereas, like, grain, there's a lot more work involved. You have to have more of it. Um, You have to have a lot more equipment. Wheat. Yeah, yeah. So. And uh, potatoes are pretty hardy. Yeah. They're efficient. They're uh, high nutritional value. So Yeah, they're nice, slow-burning starch carb. So you can eat one and then work for a long period of time on it. Mm Mm-hmm. So, um, don't have to bake it if you don't want to. Yeah, you can eat it, maybe you can eat it raw if you wanted to. Right. Uh, the rest of Ireland's farms grew a variety of crops, most of which was exported to Britain. Mm. Because remember the Corn Laws, they can't export from outside the UK or the British Empire in general. So, you know, wow, yeah. Uh, the potato itself had been introduced to Ireland as a garden crop in the 17th century, but began to gradually become a larger and larger part of the diet of lower-class Irish, for mm-hmm. reasons I already stated. Right. Uh, they were also used as fodder for what livestock there were. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times these farmers, they had, like, one animal, like a pig or a cow or something. So, uh, work ha- now, workhouses, which is a great, you know... <laughs> Great concept. Um, Mm -hmm. They had been in Ireland since early 18th century and were established to provide some sort of assistance to the most destitute in society. Basically, it's like, we will give you work, um, and you will work, and essentially we will provide you with food and shelter. Um, Yeah. Yeah, kind of like preying on the poorest of society, really. Yeah. Um, The Poor Relief Act in 1838 reformed the system and put strict limitations on who could apply for relief, as well as making workhouses the only real form of government assistance. Okay, well, that's definitely the way that that works. Mm -hmm. Uh, These workhouses were funded by taxing the local landowners. Mm -hmm. So so that's just kind of a little bit of background on the situation. It's like a big cyclical thing. Yeah. Now, there had been occasional potato crop failures in certain regions of Ireland prior to the 1840s, but nothing on the scale of what was about to happen. Oh, boy. Uh, The exact path that Phytopathora infestans, or commonly known as the blight, uh, took to Ireland is unknown, but is theorized to have originated in the Toluca Valley in central Mexico, uh, likely arriving in Ireland in 1844. Hmm. The blight itself is a fungus-like organism that causes black spots to appear on the affected crop and eventually leads to overall rot. And I have a picture of a blighted potato. Like, clearly, you know... Not having a good time. Yeah, not what it's supposed to look like. Yeah, it's it looks like pretty clearly rotten yeah. on the inside. Yeah. Definitely not an edible potato. No. Oh man, we didn't even make any Samwise jokes. Boil them, mash them. Put them in a stew. Yeah. What's taters, master? Uh, that's more Yoda. <laughs> yeah, why? He sounded like Yoda instead yeah. of Gollum. I'm not. I'm not yeah, I was gonna say you're gonna have to workshop that for yeah. a while. I, I I can do like the weird like coughing noise he does. Like, ew. No, I can do that. I, I can't, like but that. I can't do the Gollum voice yeah. too well. It's gross. So I don't like it. But Sam, Sam, uh, this this uh, episode is in. 
it's in uh it's dedicated to Samwise Sam Gamgee yes. and um, uh the the beautiful portrayal of him by that guy I can't remember his name Sean Aston yeah the beautiful portrayal of Samwise by Sean Aston hmm. he's the best so for only you reason. younger listeners that's uh Bob from Stranger Things um <laughs> or uh he was the one guy in the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina can't remember his name nope he, nope never mind he wasn't in that never mind different person got him confused <laughs> and his dad his adopted dad john was gomez on the adams family yeah yep um the original adams family the best adams family okay don't listen to him <laughs> he doesn't know what he's talking about hmm. the blight had uh, previously affected crops in the united states before appearing in northern europe uh so just came across the ocean on you know their ships or whatever. The unfortunate part is so. the United States has a lot more surface area to try and yeah, make up for that. and a lot more crop variety. Yeah, and they don't have to wait, you know, when mm-hmm. stuff comes across an ocean yep. to save them. Uh, first reports of the blight in Ireland appear in September 1845. Uh, however, the seriousness of the problem did not become apparent until the potato crop began to be harvested in October. Mm-hmm. An estimated one-third... Of the 1845 potato crop was lost to the blight. Wow. Jeez. So Once, if you got three kids, you're only feeding two of them. Not not really. That's not how that works. No. But but, two-thirds ration on basically not enough food in the first place is yeah. not good. Yeah. And, like, again, two-thirds are these small farms, and the bulk of them have the potato, and it's one variety of potato. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, especially when you think that it's a very stable crop, and so you don't have to make, like, backups or anything. Mm -hmm. Nope. Once it was realized that such a massive loss of the crop would lead to widespread hunger and starvation, the British Prime Minister, Sir Robert Peel, arranged for the secret purchase of 100,000 pounds of foodstuffs from the United States, which was technically illegal under the core laws, if you remember. And I have a picture of Peel here. But it's an emergency. There's Sir Robert Peel. Looks like pretty much everybody else during that time. Yeah, pretty Dressed much. in his fancy clothes. Yeah. Standing there. Uh, Peel himself, a little bit of background on him. Uh, he'd been born in February 1788 in Lancashire, in England. The son of a wealthy textile manufacturer. Uh, attended Oxford University and became a member of Parliament in 1809. Uh, served in various ministerial positions before becoming Prime Minister briefly in 1835-36. to uh, But returned as Prime Minister in July 1841. Uh, a couple things he'd done up to that point. He reintroduced the income tax in 1842. I bet a lot of people liked him for that. Yeah. It had been suspended after the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815. Because Britain didn't have to, you know, pay to fight Napoleon anymore. Right. Uh, the Factory Act of 1844 restricted the number of hours women and children could work in factories and introduced some safety standards. It's funny because one of those things, repealing the income tax... I guess it could both be considered... Well, well, he brought it back. Sorry. Bringing back the income tax could be considered anti-labor, but then, re- like, limiting the number of hours that people can work would be pro-labor. Yeah. So anyway, Children are still working in factories. Right. <laughs> so, we're, we're, not, we're not getting too progressive with this here. However, much of what Peel had arranged to purchase was maize, which Ireland wasn't equipped to mill and process at the scale required. Right. So a lot of it was edible, but not 
Yeah. Really what it needed. Uh, simultaneously, Peel had begun pushing for the repeal of the Corn Laws, which he saw as a necessary fix to resolve the crisis. It's like, okay, Ireland, it's going to have to, one, feed itself, and two, import food. Mm-hmm. We can't do that quickly without repealing the Corn Laws. This had the unintended effect of politicizing the developing famine, as those against repeal began to play down the famine and its mm. severity, or even just doubted entirely. Great. Sounds so, familiar. As a 21st century uh, term for it be fake news. Yeah. People thought it was fake news. Great. The more things change, the more things stay the same. Exactly. By pushing for the repeal of the Corn Laws, uh, Prime Minister Peel alienated many members of his own party, the conservatives who general, generally favored retaining the Corn Laws. Right. Because they wanted to stay rich. Yes. Uh, after a heated debate in Parliament, the Cornwall, Corn Laws were repealed in June 1846 by an odd coalition of Irish repealers, who are not called that because of the Corn Laws, they're called that because of the Act of Union. They don't want to be a part of the UK. Peel's faction of Conservatives, which okay. was not a majority in Parliament, right, and the opposition Whig Party. Okay. So the bill that the Prime Minister is putting through, most of his party doesn't support... But the opposition does. So it's like an oddball situation. Yeah, it would be as if, like, you know, uh, the... The wall got put up by Democrats? It would be like if Kevin McCarthy put forward a, in the fund, in the next spending bill to build a wall, and he got, like, and, and like, most Republicans vote, didn't want it, mm-hmm. but then he got all the Democrats on board with it. Yeah. It's just it's just odd. Yeah. It would break your brain a little bit. Yeah. Um, however, this is like the Corn Laws repealed June 1846. They're gone. However, the defeat of a coercion bill to quell dissent in Ireland, because, of course, yeah. they need troops to, uh, you know, put down any potential rebellion. Right, of course. I like that it's called a coercion bill. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're coercing yeah. you. Yes. Uh, the defeat of that led to Peel's resignation as Prime Minister shortly after the repeal of the Corn Laws. Oh, boy. His own party voted against it, just as a big F you to him, basically. <laughs> so he resigned. Wow. Um, Peel was replaced as Prime Minister by Lord John Russell, the leader of the, of the Whig Party. Uh, by this point, an estimated three quarters of the 1846 potato crop would be lost at the blight. Oh, my gosh. Meanwhile, other crops were still being exported to Britain. Wow. Yeah. So they're still losing, by the boatload, tons and tons of food. Mm-hmm. Literally tons of food. Yeah. Wow. Ireland is maybe not a net exporter at this point still, but it's pretty close. Wow. A little bit of background on the new Prime Minister, Russell. Uh, born in 1792 in Middlesex in England. The third son of the Duke of Bedford. Mm-hmm. So, blue blood. Yeah. He attended the University of Edinburgh, became a member of Parliament in 1813, uh, served in various ministerial positions during periods of Whig control beginning in the 1830s, and he was appointed Prime Minister by Queen Victoria after Peel's resignation in June 1846. So he was a Whig? Yes. Okay. Uh, Russell and the Whigs were strict adherents of free trade. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see where this is going. Yeah. And believed that the demand for food in Ireland would be met naturally by the free market. Without government intervention. Oh, my God. I'm just putting my head in my hands at this point because this is always the thing. 
It's always, oh, the free market will provide. The free market will provide. Okay. That has been the policy in the United States for the past kajillion years. I'm obviously exaggerating, mm. but but people still pay hundreds of dollars every month for insulin. How is the free market providing that? People well, having well, to... well, the free market will provide you with a better job tree, so you just have to go get it. Okay. Yeah, sure. And I get my better job, and then I pay $500 a month for insurance, and then I still have a copay. And so I have to ration my diabetes medication. Well, then you get an even better job, Teresa. Okay. Clearly, clearly uh, your your demand for this insulin re- requires you to get a higher paying job. Just, just go do it. Yeah, exactly. See, the thing, the problem with that yeah. is that assumes that the human body is a machine that does not require regular maintenance or yeah. rest. That it could just continue to go and go and go until Mm. it falls apart. And then if you can't provide or can't participate in the capitalist machine, then you don't deserve. Yeah, it's a failure on your part. Right, exactly. It's your own fault. It's a personal failure. So in this case, they're saying, yeah, we don't really care that these people are starving because the free market will provide the people who can't already afford better food and have to work in workhouses the free market will provide. <laughs> Just you wait. Okay, great. One of the most influential people in the Russell government was an assistant secretary to the Treasury, an hour effer upper for the day, and quite frankly, the one out of all of my research that made me the most mad. Oh, great. Charles Trevelyan. Okay. He'd been born in April 1807 in Somerset in England. The son of an Anglican clergyman, mm. which may influence some of his attitudes. Is he super conservative? I don't I don't honestly know anything about the Anglican Church, so aside from it's baby Catholic. Well, they don't like Catholics. I know. But the, just, but they're kind of like Catholics. I don't know enough about the theology to dispute or agree with that. So But um, they have I'm, bishops and stuff. Yeah, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're the doctrine itself is Catholic. Yeah. I just mean like Face value, it's similar. I don't, I don't want to get into it, but because um, I'm not, I don't know that much about it. So, anyway, uh, Trevelyan he joined the British East India Company in 1826. Oh boy! And he lived in India until 1840, when he was appointed an assistant secretary to the Treasury. Which means he did well in India. Which means he participated in the subjugation yep. of the Indian people. Uh, there's a picture of Russell, old white dude. Yep, big eyebrows. And there's a picture of Trevelyan. Old white dude. No facial hair, though. That's weird. Yeah, he just... It, out of the three, he looks the most stuffy of them. <laughs> stuffy, yes. Yeah. So, uh, shortly after coming to power, the Russell government, under the advice of Trevelyan, discontinued what little relief programs Peel had put in place. Uh, Trevelyan was the point person for the government policy on this issue. He was the most influential. He advised Parliament on it. He's basically the guy in charge. Our people need more help. Dissolve all of the the ways that we're helping them. Pretty much. In January 1847, the government shifted aid to the workhouse system and a series of soup kitchens. Basically, that's all that Ireland is going to get. Wow. Both of these were largely funded by taxes on Irish land. It was the belief of Trevelyan and many in the government that Irish relief should be paid for by the Irish... And that the government should pay as little as possible. Wow. So he's like, hmm, we're, yeah. we're, we're trying to save money right now. 
Yeah, there's not, like, one specific thing he does, like, one specific F-up. Just his existence in general is an F-up. Well, and his attitude towards helping, because in times, Mm -hmm. successful times of help in history, like, the one that I'm thinking of right off the top of my head is FDR, required an an incredible amount of government spending. Yeah, like, unprecedented amount of government intervention into the market. And we've spent tons of money, we go into deficit spending... And then we make up for that with the bounce back in the economy and the the increased ability yeah. to spend in people that would otherwise not have been able to spend. Yeah. And it ends up leveling out. You have many, many years of deficit spending, though. And then hopefully, eventually, it'll yeah. even out, like provided that there's not, you know, Dump a bunch of other things. On, like, you know, a pandemic or. Yeah. Or spending, you know, $800 billion on a defense budget. Which is more than the rest of the world combined, or hey now. wanting to de- completely some of, some defund. Of us, some of us get paid by that defense budget, so I didn't say it shouldn't exist at all. I'm saying it shouldn't be eight hundred billion dollars, or you know, wanting to completely or nearly defund the IRS, the thing that brings in the money. Can happen digitally. Yeah. It's anyway. gonna it's gonna be like those McDonald's where you go in and and there isn't anybody to take your order. You just do it on the kiosk. That's yeah. how the IRS is gonna be. It's just gonna be completely I like AI run, and there's not gonna be anybody to talk to. There's no audits. It's all electronic. The rich will still find a way to get around it. Yeah. In June 1847, an amendment to the Irish Poor Law was passed by Parliament, which prohibited anyone from receiving relief who was in possession of more than a quarter acre of land. (laughs) Okay. They were like, you don't need help. You have more than a quarter of an acre. This had the effect of forcing many families who could not afford to buy food and obviously could not rely on the potato. Yeah, right. To cede their farms to their landlords. They basically had to just give up their home to eat because they worked more than a quarter of an acre of land because, you know, that's next to nothing. Right. It's just, it, in 18, I'll give you some numbers. In 1849 to 1850, this policy forced approximately 240,000 people off their farms and into the workhouses. Jesus. Through 1846, Ireland was still a net exporter of food. Beginning in 1847, which is the worst year of the pan- of the not the pan- of the, uh, <laughs> the 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 famine, mm-hmm. and through the rest of the famine, it was a net importer, but it was still exporting food. I just looked it up. I just wanted to see, like, get an idea of how big an acre is, or how big a quarter of an acre is. <laughs> the quarter of an acre is ten thousand eight hundred ninety square feet. The lot in which we are sitting right now is 5,602 square feet. So a quarter of an acre is about my house plus my neighbor's house. Yeah, plus your backyards. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Which isn't, I mean... People struggle to, like, grow gardens mm -hmm. with that amount of space, let alone, like, and that's for funsies. That's not to, like... Feed your Subsist. family. Yeah. And, and remember, this is a period where there's no, like, birth control or anything, so, so families don't have kids. a large amount of children. Right. And so. they're, a lot of the Irish are still Catholic, mm-hmm. which means all the babies yeah. have to come. Yep. Uh, the repeal of the Corn Laws enabled Ireland to import a lot more food, but it wasn't enough. 
Well, yeah, three the, three quarters of your staple crop being yeah, and gone, it, and it accounts for like half of what you're growing. Right. So, uh, as I said, the island was still exporting food, mostly to Britain, even though millions were starving. The cargo ships that left Ireland with food had to be guarded by the British military. My God, does that not show you that? Yeah. Um, to quote one of the um, sources I used, uh, Cecil Woodham Smith, uh, nothing was more anger-inducing, quote, as the indisputable fact that huge quantities of food were exported from Ireland to England throughout the period when the people of Ireland were dying of starvation. Yeah. Quote. That's insane. Yeah. Even on those farms where the potato was not the only source of food, uh, the crop would be sold by the tenant farmers to pay their rents. Oh my gosh. So they're having to make a choice, sell the food to pay our yep. rent eat or, or eat. have shelter. Yeah. The Russell government also passed the Labor Rate Act, which limited the scope of what little government relief was to the most affected part of parts of Ireland. Even what little relief was being done was slow walked by Trevelyan. My gosh. He subscribed to the view, common among the upper classes of British society, that the famine was an act of divine providence. Wow. In his book, yes, he wrote a book about this in 1848 called The Irish Crisis because he's got to make a buck off it somehow. Right. Trevelyan described the famine as, quote, a direct stroke of an all-wise and all-merciful providence, end quote. This isn't just a supposition I'm making. He said this. Wow. His limiting of relief was rooted... You see why I'm getting... Like, this makes me mad. Yeah. His limiting of relief was rooted in the belief that if a person became reliant on the government for salvation, even for a brief period, then that person would be conditioned to always ask for handouts from the government. Oh my gosh. Wow. Do you see the parallels <laughs> today? Oh yeah. Uh, Trevelyan, he wrote to Lord Mount Eagle a former chancellor, which basically their secretary of the treasury, so mm -hmm. former treasury secretary, that the famine was, quote, an effective mechanism for reducing surplus population, end quote. Wow. And that the, quote, real evil with which we have to contend is not the physical evil of the famine, but the moral evil of the selfish, perverse, and turbulent character of the people. Wow. End quote. So, essentially, he didn't see Irish people as people. No. He saw them as cogs in the machine to pay the tenant the, or the their rents so he, that they could line their pockets. He saw it as like, well, if they would just be proper English Anglicans, yeah. they, God would save them. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. He, God uh, in the free market. Yeah. Hand God, in hand. God in the free market would save them. So essentially, this is there should be a book called that. This like, is like the <laughs> the worst kind of xenophobia, like because yeah. I don't want to because it's not really racism. I don't really want to say that Bigotry. it's racism. Yeah, but um, the British not considering Irish people to be worthy of their money or their assistance or their like. Well, government assistance. I'm, I'm about to get to something else here. Right, right, yeah. Uh, Trevelyan also absolved the government of any blame for the crisis. Of course. Laying it at the feet of the landlords. Yeah. He believed that they should have instructed the tenants on proper farming techniques and relying less on the potato, even though that's all they could do. Right, and, like, it's... 
that that's a a weird flex to say well the people that you're renting land from should have told you better about how to yeah. farm that that's like your your landlord saying like this is how you do your job better yeah that makes no sense Trevelyan also pushed for private charity from individuals and organizations as he saw that this could be a substitute for government assistance. Oh yeah, that's that's always the thing. It's like, oh well, the free market will fill the void, will fill the gap there. Yeah, and, and the rich people, they'll take care of everything. Right, they'll just give you charity, and and it's like, sure, that it, that should be true. Yeah, there should be, you know. And, and I will say this: the charitable effort to for this was Vast. worldwide. Yeah, yeah over eight hundred fifty-six thousand pounds was raised from around the world, and that's in those dollars. Right, or that amount of money back then. It's, a large amount of money now. Uh, Pope Pius IX donated funds himself and issued an encyclical calling on all Catholics to assist with, with relief efforts. Yep. Uh, Russian Tsar Alexander II, U.S. President James Polk, the Quakers, and but, others from around the world donated. Even the Choctaws wow. donated $170. That's crazy, though, because it it's always, to me, the struggle with this is always organization it's like, sure, we're we're getting all of these funds. Like, let's say the Red Cross. We'll use them as an example because they've done terribly with, with money like that. We'll, we'll call out and say, you know what? There's this huge hurricane. The people of Haiti are destitute. They don't have water. They don't have electricity. How do we fix this? So the Red Cross will say, we will come to the rescue. And then the Red Cross takes all of the money and through whatever machinations of terrible bureaucracy they end up getting a fraction of the money that was given to the red cross and then the red cross squanders that anyways yeah donate to local charities don't donate to large umbrella organizations like that yeah or if you can try to invest in charitable organizations that are sending people there Mm. like not the red cross yeah (laughs) churches or something normally local churches will have like disaster relief teams uh to quote a newspaper editor named Julie, Judy Allen, uh, this was years later, this is like a historical review of this, uh, about the Choctaws donating money. It had been just 16 years since the Choctaw people had experienced the Trail of Tears, and they had faced starvation. Yeah. It was an amazing gesture. Yeah. And um, to the point where, like, Irish, like, some of them, like, a few, like, this was several years ago, they went, they, they traced the Trail of Tears themselves. And wow. just, like... Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Jeez. Uh, the Ottoman Sultan wanted to donate 10,000 pounds. I'm going to make you mad again. The Ottoman Sultan wanted to donate 10,000 pounds, but was persuaded to donate only 1,000 by the British ambassador. Do you want to guess why? Because the British ambassador was like, let's throw a party instead. No. Because Queen Victoria was only going to donate 2,000 pounds, and it would be unseemly... <laughs> For a foreign ruler to donate more than the ruler of Ireland. This is why monarchies are garbage. Here's an idea. Tell Queen Vicky to donate more money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She probably didn't have it. Oh, she had it. Walking around money for her. <laughs> she needed, look, she needed to play bingo. Yeah. Okay, she, mama needs her bingo night. <laughs> I mean, it's no coincidence she, somebody tried to kill her like ten times. I didn't know that. Yeah, like later on. She she had several assassination attempts against her. Um, Not good assassins. No. Uh, the reduced incomes of the tenant farmers led to another crisis on top of the famine. Because remember, 
they're not have they don't have, a lot of them don't have enough money to pay their rent. Right, exactly. So now they're all getting evicted, of course. Landlords were liable for the taxes on those tenants who paid less than four pounds per year in rent. Wow. Since the number of those who could pay that amount became smaller and smaller, landlords decided to reduce their tax liability by evicting tenants from their lands, replotting their holdings, and renting the farms to those who could pay more than four pounds. Evictions began to increase exponentially in 1847, but the numbers weren't tracked until 1849. Mm-hmm. Between 1849 and 1854, over a quarter million people were evicted from their homes. Wow. And often, the homes would be destroyed to prevent the tenants from returning. Wow. Cool. Yep. What a way to, like... It just seems so pointless. Yep. One of the most egregious of the evicting landlords was the Earl of Lucan, who owned over 60,000 acres of land. Of course he was an earl. Um, I bring him up because... Uh, like James Bond, he will return oh boy. in a later episode because uh, he will pro- feature prominently in a, in a planned to be determined future date episode on the Charge of the Light Brigade. I don't even know what that is. I've never heard of it. Uh, subject of a famous poem by Lord Tennyson. Yeah, all right. Um, I know Lord Tennyson, but I've never read the what might be of more interest to you, his great-great-grandson, the seventh Earl of Lucan, uh, was the central player in a murder mystery in the 1970s. A real murder mystery? Oh, yeah. He, like, I think he, like, he like murdered his uh, family's maid, and then he, he, like, vanished. Like, he's never been, he hasn't, he's never been found. When, when about was this? Like, 1974, I think. Dang. I so he murdered say. the maid, and then he He, he was out. deep in debt, too, so... So why did he kill the maid? I, I don't I don't remember the specifics of it, but it's a murder mystery, so I figured that would pique your interest. They made a movie about it. It's called Clue. I've seen it. I'm just kidding. No, but, but, no but, that yeah. wasn't the maid. Yeah, <laughs> that was but, Mr. Body. And the maid. And so, everybody. So, extended quote here from Thomas Nolte, the Bishop of Meath, in 1847. <laughs> the Bishop of Meath. Meath. It's a place in Ireland. I know. It's just... Quote, 700 human beings were driven from their homes in one day and set adrift on the world to gratify the caprice of one who, before God and man, probably deserved less consideration than the last and least of them. The horrid scenes I then witnessed I must remember all my life long. The wailing of women, the screams, the terror, the consternation of children, the speechless agony of honest, industrious men wrung tears of grief from all who saw them. I saw officers and men of a large police force who were obliged to attend on the occasion, cry like children at beholding the cruel sufferings of the very people whom they would be obliged to butcher had they offered the least resistance. The landed proprietors in a circle all around, and for many miles in every direction, warned their tenantry with threats of direct vengeance against against the humanity of extending to any of them the hospitality of a single night's shelter. And in little more than three years... Nearly a fourth of them lay quietly in their graves. Jesus. End quote. So basically, they just roused them out of their houses mm-hmm. and said... At, at, at the barrel of a gun. And the cops are crying. Yeah, even because they, they're not wanting to do this. Because right. they see, like, this is horrible. Yeah. But the landlord's like, don't... And, and the rest of you, don't help them. Yeah. And we have soup kitchens, but that's it. Not ones to let an opportunity slip by. Oh, God. Protestant ministers offered soup to the children of destitute families. But, of course, being ministries, it's conditional. Right. 
so long as the families consented to the children being taught in Protestant schools. Cool. The families that took such deals were called supers, and I don't mean S-U-P-E-R, yeah. I mean S-O-U-P-E-R. Mm-hmm. In order to clamp down on potential unrest, the Crime and Outrage Bill, again, British names for their laws are spot on. Yeah. They really don't take any no, any time. No, there's no subtlety. Yeah, they're just like, what is this about? Oh, Crime yeah, that and thing? outrage. All right, cool. So here, where it's like, oh, we have to make it fit an acronym somehow. It's like, or it has to be 30 words long. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was passed in December 1847, which empowered the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, like their governor, mm-hmm. to increase the police force and restrict gun ownership. Great, of course. Uh, the potato crops of 1848 and 1849 also failed. Oh, my God. And the number of people reliant on workhouse aid reached its peak of 840,000 in July 1848. How many people... We'll get to that. Okay. I was gonna we'll we'll, we'll, we'll well, discuss that. I was just going to ask, like, what the population was. Well, I'll, 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 uh, let me just go forward here. Uh, 1841 census was 8.1 million. And there's 840,000? So ten percent. It's pro- the population is probably a lot less by now. Yeah. An uprising that same month was quickly put down by the military. Um, by eighteen fifty, the famine began to recede, partly from the retreat of the blight, is what potatoes survived are adapting, mm-hmm. and partly from the sheer reduction in the number of people to support. We're and I'm also assuming that. Yes, there are lots of people dying, but there's also a lot of people, if they can, probably fleeing from yeah. Ireland. Yeah. Oh, well, well, I'm going to okay. get to that. Um, late 1840s, early 1850s. The recent innovative technology that came about, the camera. So this is one of the first big disasters where oh, we have boy. photos. and I'm, That's just a photo of a poor Irish family in their home just huddling around like their dirt floor. It's like they have nothing. Wow. So it's like barely a shelter. Uh, yeah. So just enough to keep the wind out of off of them. Yeah. Uh, so estimates put the number of people who left Ireland between 1846 and 1851 at between one and 1.5 million. These are the people who just left. Uh, typically, younger family members would be the ones to leave first. They'd find work in their new country and then send money back to their family in Ireland would then buy passage for themselves. Of course. Uh, and immigration at this time, like, it wasn't just like, oh, I'm getting on a boat, going across the ocean in a few weeks. Um, I'll still write letters, you know, I can phone you or what. Right. Still staying in communication with it, like, you know, overseas. Sure. It was a major event at this time that could permanently tear families apart, as it was possible, if not probable, that those who left would never see or hear from those who stayed ever again. Sure. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, you have a letter. You can, you can write letters, but it, it's going to take a long time. It's not a perfect system. Exactly. So it's like you, yeah. So you might hear from them. They might not be able, they might lose your address or lose yeah. a way to communicate with you. Exactly. They may never have money for postage. There's, I, I know I have a picture of it on here, but there's a place in Ireland um, where a lot of the ships would leave. I don't remember where offhand. It came up in my research. It's literally called the Bridge of Tears. Wow. Because that's where, like, the families, like, seeing their friends and loved ones off. Jeez. Yeah. The majority of the immigrants went to the United States. Between 1851 and 1860, over 917,000 Irish people came to the country. Yep. Um, which, obviously, 
had a huge effect on American culture. Right. I mean... And the amount of people... The thing with these Irish immigrants is that they were often spending all of their money to leave. Mm -hmm. And so when they get here, they have no money. Oh, yeah. And so they're trying hard to work so that they can spend as little money as possible so they can send as much back home. But that's... An yeah. incredibly, it's an incredibly frustrating cycle because at the time when Irish folks came here, it was like they were the new, like, lowliest of the low. It's hard for people to get jobs. Yeah, and of course there was certainly racism against them, especially a lot of them were Catholic. Right. Which was a really big thing in this country up to that point. Right. So. Um, and big families. Yeah. You know. Many of those who immigrated or their sons would serve during the American Civil War, mostly for the Union, over 200,000. Yep, they were... Like, were Irish-born? Yeah, that's... Out uh, of a total who served in the Union of 2.1 million. So a full tenth Guaranteed of the pay and, and food. Exactly, so... It's easy. Which, I mean, so if you don't have that influx of, like, how does that affect, these, <laughs> affect the Civil War? Right. And so it's weird to think about, like, how much, you know, a potato famine in Ireland has the effect on the effect of, you know, <laughs> the outcome of slavery in the United States. Right. Um... Not that long afterwards, like 20, 30 years. Like not even that. Yeah. So, other significant destinations included Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Britain itself. Um, in 1841, the census returned a population of over 8.1 million. Mm-hmm. In 1851, 10 years later, the census returned a population of, do you want to take a guess? 3.2 million. Not quite that bad. 6.5 million. <sighs> Almost two million. However, the projection million. for the 1851 census, like if it population rates had continued on, was over nine million. <sighs> Disease had ravaged the population in addition to starvation, with fever and diphtheria as the worst culprits. Because of course. you can't eat right, your immune system is going to be shot. Right. The most widely accepted modern estimate is over one million dead. Wow. Overall, Ireland lost. 20 to 25% of its population. Yeah. I had a feeling that it was going to be pretty Yeah, pretty and that's significant. generally the population loss across the island. Like, only a few areas actually gained, like, around the cities. Like, that's from Dublin and Belfast. Mm-hmm. But, like, you see, like, especially here in the west is the worst of it. Right. And largely the areas yeah. where they farm the most. And largely, that's the areas where, like, today, uh, the concentration of native Irish Gaelic speakers uh, is in the west. Wow. So that, I'll get to that in a little bit, but, um, because I do want to talk about the language. Um, do you want to guess what the population of Ireland is today? Can you just tell me if it's less than? Less than, Just just take a ballpark. Four and a half million. Uh, it's just over seven million. Oh, so, so the It still has not recovered... Yeah. To the pre-famine population, like it, even for years, it still goes down. It wow. like Ireland doesn't really experience a population increase until the 1960s. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes sense that it makes sense that both. So, so not only is this area going to be physically ravaged, you know, people with death, starvation, weakening of families, young people especially being the ones to leave and 
so they're not having kids, so they don't have their kids to add into the population. But also, this is going to weaken this country incredibly when Mm. it comes to economics, too, because these people who have maybe survived through starvation, they don't have any money. They don't have any way to make money. They're homeless or they've been living on these tenant farmer, you know, quarter acre sections and they barely have enough to eat. So how are they going to work? Like, how do you work if you can't nourish your body? Uh, They did learn in a way not to entirely rely on the potato because you can see like the share of the potato in terms of Irish agriculture by 1900 greatly reduced. Right. It dropped down. We can't rely on yeah one crop for all of our food 40 percent yeah uh so robert peel he continued as a member of parliament until his death in 1850 so he didn't live for too much longer right he didn't Uh, see all of it yeah uh john russell continued as prime minister until 1852 but remained in politics uh he was made an earl in 1861 and served another term as prime minister from 1865 to 66 before dying in 1878 wow Charles Trevelyan, in 1848, so during the, I keep wanting to say pandemic, during the famine, (laughs) Mm -hmm. wasn't even done with it yet, was knighted for his efforts. So he's Sir Charles Trevelyan. Great. He worked for famine relief in Scotland in the early 1850s, but showed a lot more zeal in saving the Highland Scots from hunger than he did the Irish. Oh, weird. Hmm. Wonder why. They're not Catholic. Yeah, it doesn't have anything to do with that. Uh, He chaired a civil service commission in 1853 uh, before returning to India in 1859 as the governor of of Madras, which is modern-day Chennai. Uh, He returned to Britain in 1865 and remained active in politics until his death, which I hope was painful and horrible and just... I hope he's one of these people who in the 19th century... Just, like, shat himself to death. Oh, my gosh. Until uh, he died in 1886. Far too long. Um, I lost my objectivity completely. (laughs) I don't care. Um, Irish nationalism, it was quiet in the immediate aftermath of the famine, but it would begin to rise again in the 1870s and would continue to build until Irish independence was finally achieved in 1922. The native Irish language was critically affected Uh, as most of the speakers were the poor farmers who either left or died. Uh, The language is still being revived, but slowly. While about 40% of the modern population can speak it, less than 2% use it in daily conversation. And you definitely see, like, a government effort to try to, like, not force it, but make it a a greater part of life. That's why, like, all their offices are, uh, like, the prime minister is the... I can never pronounce it. The Taisha or No, it's T-Shock. T-Shock. Remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. T-Shock. Like that. Like every, like even on their passports, it has it in both English and Irish Gaelic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it, it so they, it's they, important they, to them. Yeah, it is a very, because it's, again, it's a, like reclaiming their yeah. identity. Um, and I think a lot of people, I think um, more people are learning Irish Gaelic on, uh, Duolingo than there are people who speak it. They're not a sponsor of this show. <laughs> I I use Duolingo and sometimes when a lesson they can is... be if they're listening. <laughs> 
when uh, sometimes when the lesson's loading, it'll give you like these neat mm. little tidbits. And I'm pretty sure that they said that about Irish Gaelic, but it could be wrong. Uh, to this day, Ireland is among the leaders worldwide in famine relief. I'm sure. Understandably. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why there's a debate about this, but debate among scholars continues today on whether or not the famine qualifies as a genocide. Okay. I'd say it does. I, I mean, the say... attitudes of the people in charge, like Trevelyan and, you know, Russell, or like some of these other jack wagons. It's like, how does it not? Yeah, I just looked up, I just wanted to see what the definition of genocide is. and Maybe it doesn't meet the technical, literal definition, but it yeah. definitely, it, it's at least a quasi-genocide. Yeah. I mean, some in some areas of Ireland, it's considered a, like their Holocaust. Right. Maybe it wasn't an organized, systematic effort to kill people, right? Like, like the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. So maybe that is a, is what qualifies does it qualify it or disqualifies it as a genocide. But it was a genocide by apathy. Yes. And deliberate inaction. Yeah. Which I think I'm sure there's a word for that, like genocide, but by yeah. neglect. Uh, ending on this note, uh, John Mitchell, a leader of the Young Ireland movement in the 1860s, wrote, quote, I have called it an artificial famine. That is to say, it was a famine which desolated a rich and fertile island that produced every year abundance and superabundance to sustain all her people and many more. The English indeed call a famine a dispensation of providence and ascribe it entirely to the blight on potatoes. But potatoes failed in like manner all over Europe, yet there was no famine save in Ireland. The British account of the matter, then, is first a fraud, second a blasphemy. The Almighty, indeed, sent the potato blight, but the English created the famine. End quote. Woof. It's a pretty intense statement about that, but yeah, that's... I mean, it hits the nail right on the head. If if a blight is happening, and a blight is not limited to potatoes, it can happen to any yeah. crop and, that and it again, comes into contact with. Other countries in northern, especially northern Europe, were they had the blight too, but yeah. they weren't experiencing mass famines on this scale. And it was a perfect storm yes. of having an, an entire population reliant upon that one crop. The, and, si- the system could not be sustained through the famine. Right, exactly. Yeah. And there was no help to be found. Not of any meaningful amount, anyways. Sources I used for this, um, it's from Tim Pat Coogan, The Famine Plot from 2012, James Donnelly, The Great Irish Potato Famine from 2005, Thomas Gallagher, Patty's Lament from 1987, John Kelly, The Graves Are Walking from 2012, uh, Francis Martin and Theodore Moody, uh, The Course of Irish History, the 5th edition, Ciara and Merchata, um, the Great Famine from 2011, Cormac O'Grada, Black 47 and Beyond from 1999, and Cecil Woodham Smith, The Great Hunger from 1962. Uh, and... It's pronounced Kieran. 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 The Sierra. Kieran Merchata. Yeah. Okay. My apologies. Um, and since we don't, again, don't have any feedback, the podcast recommendation I will leave you with on this episode is the Irish History Podcast pretty good pretty solid so awesome. go listen to it is it lecture style or do they have two people uh, it's like it's like one person okay cool oh that's all i got 
Uh, so next time, are we going to talk about something that's not nearly as heavy, or is it still going to be real, real depressing? Not as heavy, no. Are you going to give us a hint? I can't think of a good hint offhand, so I'll just say, uh, you know, it, it's fitting we're talking about, um, uh, yeah, I don't think they're related, but it's somebody of the same last name as our uh, new Speaker of the House. Oh, uh, so, yeah, we'll we'll be talking about old old tail gunner Joe himself, Joseph McCarthy. Oh, uh, something you, I'm a name you know. Yeah, at least McCarthyism. Right? Yes, okay. Something you learn about in high school. Yeah, every American learns about and apparently takes no lessons from. Because <laughs> I mean, his spirit is alive and well today. Oh boy! Just say so. Please be sure to check out our other projects, The Drunken Pawn, where we play board games and drink on YouTube, Uh, Attack of the Final Girls, my sister podcast project with my lovely pod wife, Juliet, where we talk about horror movies. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WeFedUp, no spaces. Be sure to rate and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And this is WeFedUp. WeFedUp.